When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Betches Media presents. I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. you like beer, Senator, or not? Uh, my party is going bat crazy. <laughs> You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello and welcome to the Betches Up Podcast. I'm Sammy Fishbein and today I am joined by, I think, our our biggest guest ever. Her, her name, you may have heard of her, is Katie Couric. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Sammy. Happy to be here. This is going to be really fun and I'm so impressed with this whole operation that you've built. Thank so, you. Congrats. Thank oh, that you. was a Another, bad high a five. Better one. But, you know, yeah. someone told me to do a perfect high five. Yeah. You look at the other person's elbow. Okay, That's good right. plan. Yes. Right? You hear that clap, guys? Yeah, Did that you hear was that? good. Uh, you know what? I thought I would not learn anything today. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> and at the very least, that's what we got. So, I mean, this is this is a huge honor. I'm interviewing the number one interviewer of everything. You have such an incredible, an incredible resume and so much experience to share with us, I'm sure. Um, but today, in other words, to- I'm very, very old. No, no, <laughs> it was not meant that way. Yeah. No, no, it was not meant that way. No, it's true. I've been in the business for a long time, you- and um, yeah, I do have a lot of experience at this point. It's really, it's really incredible. So, I think so. The Betches Up is our news and politics podcast. So, we wanted to talk about uh, covering elections and the state of journalism and how it's evolved over the past, let's say, two or three decades. Uh, so I guess just to start, what is it like to cover a presidential election? You know, I think that the best person to talk to about that uh, would be the person out in the field, because those people are kind of working day in and day out, relentlessly uh, following these candidates. And um, certainly as an anchor, I, I never actually covered a candidate, which I wish I had done. Um, in terms of actually being uh, one of the girls on the bus, if you will. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I think, really challenging because no matter how many elections people do a sort of a postmortem on and say, gosh, we shouldn't have really focused so much on the horse race, ultimately, that's what people focus on. And, uh, you know, who's up, who's down, the latest poll, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I think what's really important is to get the mood of the country. I think we do. I mean, at this point, it's almost like it become a hackneyed uh, expression. But we do live in our bubbles here in New York, here on the coast, here in, you know, uh, urban areas. And I think that we would be well served to spend much more time really digging into the issues that are facing the average American. And uh, it, I, I think it's such a fascinating, such a troubling time, but such a fascinating time from a sort of overall perspective, demographically, politically, geographically, what's happening in our country. And um, that really doesn't answer your question. But I think it's complicated, I guess, would be the bottom line covering a campaign. And I think that we Uh, I can't say we always do the best job doing it if I had to speak collectively for the media, which is increasingly difficult to do because it's so fragmented. Mass media has become an oxymoron, and there are so many people covering so many aspects, and it's become increasingly bifurcated. It's a a big Megillah question, and it's really hard to answer because there's so many facets to it, I think. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the horse race element of election coverage because that's something we struggle with here is that just the, how else can you cover it? Um, do you, you know what I yeah. think would be an interesting way to cover it, actually, is to find some voters, 
You know, now with technology, with either FaceTime or with just being able to pick up a phone, um, I think you could find voters in different parts of the country and actually check with, check in with them on a regular basis, especially if this podcast in particular focuses on voters, and talk to them and see how they're feeling. And I think you'll be surprised at how uh, different opinions are from those p- perhaps in your circle of friends or family members. I just had a communication actually today with a driver uh, I met in Southwest Virginia when I was there doing a speech at Radford College. And I was I met this very nice gentleman named Gary. He's retired and now he's driving for a car service. So he drove me from the speech to the airport. And I said, Gary, you know, he's a really lovely guy. Tell me, you know, how you're feeling about the Democratic contenders. And he said, I'm I am a big supporter of Mr. Trump's. And I said, Can you explain why? He said, Everyone's really forgotten people like me in southwestern Virginia. I feel that that President Trump actually saw me, recognized me, and people who live in areas like this. And I said, does it bother you, you know, the way he behaves, the way he comports himself, some of the things he says? Um, does Do you find that troubling? He said, I, I just don't think he's a politician. He doesn't talk like a politician. So he and I have now had a cell phone kind of relationship. You know, we message each other occasionally, not that often. I, I recommended that he reads uh, She Said. <laughs> I was yeah. really interested. I don't think he ever did. But yesterday I got a text from him saying, this is a very sad day for the country, and I think the Democratic Party is really going to regret this. And I said... Both can be true. Why is this? And um, he explained that he thought, I wish I'd brought my phone in here. Oh, actually, I have it. Would you like to know what he said? Yes. Because I feel like we all need to be talking to people who may um, have a variety of opinions. So I'm just going to show you what Gary said. This is yesterday at 417. Katie, how are you? This is a sad day for our country. I am so embarrassed. I believe the Democrats will live to regret this day. My best, Gary. Hi, Gary. Why do you think that? Hi, Katie. Before the impeachment started, the polls showed that Trump would lose to every person running for the Democratic nomination. That has now reversed. He's ahead of all of them, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania especially. People are tired of this impeachment. In spite of this, the economy and jobs are at an all-time high. The Democrats doesn't. I think he meant don't. The Democrats don't have a good candidate to run against him. So this is Gary in southwestern Virginia. And um, I didn't have time, actually, because I just communicated this with him to check on the polls that he was referring to. But I think this is so illustrative of of the fact that we live in two different worlds, two different countries when it comes to media. I think depending on the media you're consuming, you can have a polar opposite view. I now heard people, I heard Don Lemon talking about this on CNN. I mean, this is something I've been saying for months and months and months, that people are getting affirmation, not information. And because all cable outlets really have chosen a side, whether, you know, and, and, and their, their primetime uh, commentators have become, their primetime hosts, have, anchors, have become more commentators than anchors. I don't think anybody is really viewed necessarily as an honest broker in the current media landscape. So Gary thinks one thing, other people think another thing, and never the twain shall meet. And I think it's so indicative of where we are as a country. Donald Trump has made a lot of money on the impeachment. On Facebook, he's raised a tremendous amount of money. Uh, putting forth the idea that this is a witch hunt, that it's a Democratic, uh, you know, plot against him. And, of course, then other people think very clearly they believe that what he did was, you know, was against the, you know, unconstitutional. This is why the Founding Fathers actually came up with this notion of impeachment And it's just strange to have two diametrically opposed viewpoints coexist in this country. I don't, you know, I don't know what to say or do about it. It's very confounding. 
Right. I, and I, I struggle with this also. I have um, a lot of family members who, who are Trump supporters. And where, where do they live? So it, it's my fiance's family. Uh-huh. They're religious Jews. So uh-huh. they come from a community that is very supportive of him, very happy with how he's handled Israel. Right. And I feels have, like he's much more supportive of Israel than perhaps Barack Obama was. Absolutely. That is like their, that is their line. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they have their opinions on the Iran deal and all these things. But it really does feel like there's there's one narrative that that people who are Trump supporters have. And then there's this other narrative that people who are not Trump supporters have. Do you think there's ever a chance that that we can get out of this? And how would you see that going? Do you think it has to get so much worse for there to be a massive clash between these two things for for it, for us to come together again? I don't know. You know, I think this is something that predates and will will continue, even if Donald Trump isn't reelected. Um, I think that we just live in a very polarized country, and I think that the outrage that comes from being uh, ideologically aligned with a certain media outlet is actually helps those media outlets um, entrench. Well, no, it, well, I was going to say it helps them, you know, get higher ratings oh, yeah. because people want that emotional, visceral connection. I don't think they want to be challenged necessarily intellectually. You know, it's hard to actually have a nuanced conversation. It's hard to see other people's points of view. It requires patience and empathy and understanding. And unless there's a real effort to kind of get a group together and have and really interface with people who may disagree in a respectful way, I don't think we're ever going to kind of cross this huge chasm that seems to be getting bigger and bigger in our country. So I I wish I knew the answer. I have a friend who moved to Cleveland to take care of her parents. So she lives on the outskirts of Cleveland, very different environment, you know, uh, more of a working class area outside of Cleveland. And we have these conversations because living there for a couple of years, caring for her aging parents has really kind of changed her perspective on many things. But I think uh, we don't have an opportunity to really be challenged or even exposed to people who are different than we are. You know, Brian Stevenson, who I'm a huge admirer of, who started the Equal Justice Initiative and wrote Just Mercy, the movie's coming out at Christmas, talks about the importance of being proximate. And I think that goes for everyone. In his case, I think it's the importance of being proximate towards people who have been wronged by the criminal justice system, by, by people who are, uh, you know, have felt have faced uh, discrimination their entire lives, who are in in poverty, living in poverty. And I think it also goes for people who have different political views, the importance of being proximate. There's a really excellent book written by Joan Williams, and she wrote it based on a Harvard Business Review article after the 2016 election called White Working Class. And I highly recommend it to your listeners um, and to you, it's not very, very, very big, and it's it's a quick read, but it actually kind of explains how this this was fueled and some of the really positive things about sort of uh, this population and some of the things that have fueled their outrage, their frustration, their class resentment, and um, it just it's I think it's really worth a read. Yeah, I, mean, I know I I'm kind of blabbing on and on, aren't no, I? No, you're, no. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I, and we, we want to hear, we definitely want to hear them. So where do you, so as a journalist, where do you see your role in this chasm? Is it in helping to to bridge it? Is it in bringing multiple perspectives? Like where, like what, what mark do you want to make on this uh, error in, in particular? It's really hard, you know. I mean, I I would ideally like, like to, to, Bridget, I would like to bring people together. I don't know if that is even a foolhardy notion at this point. Some people say, you know, of the more moderate candidates who are trying to unify, they say, why why bother? You know, it's impossible to do that. And one side is right and one side is wrong. But I really believe there are good people on both sides. It's, you know, sometimes hard uh, I think for people to believe it on both sides yeah. that the opposite has, you know, that they they have some there's some commonal commonality there. But I do believe there is. So, 
you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it would be very hard for me to be on a cable news show day in and day out kind of espousing the philosophy of that particular news outlet. Um, so I think what I like to do in my small way is what I did with this series on Nat Geo called America Inside Out, available on Hulu if anybody wants to watch, is to actually listen, is to actually do what Brian Stevenson said, to get proximate, to go to towns like Erie, Pennsylvania, and Fremont, Nebraska, and Stone, Storm Lake, Iowa, and to listen to Americans who actually feel like they ha- that they aren't being heard or seen. Um, I think that more people should be doing that. Um, but in the meantime, you know, through some of the work I'm doing, I'm trying to talk about things that transcend political sides. For example, I'm doing a project called Thank You Notes, where women who have been inspired by other women write, read them a thank you note. And so I have all sorts of well-known people like Jamila Jamil thanking Tarana Burke for starting the Me Too movement. Um, There are other people, Billie Jean King took part in it, and she's been such a role model for young women in tennis. And so I'm, I'm trying to do things that actually possibly are unifying. And then when it comes to sort of my newsletter or social media channels, you know, I, I try to look beyond sort of our little circle at Katie Couric Media. And can we find an interesting opposing point of view? Maybe I'll interview Gary, you know, the driver for my newsletter so people can hear what he's thinking. Um, because sometimes I also go on Instagram, believe it or not. And I, uh, not that I don't go on Instagram, but I follow uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle. Is that Yes. Uh, who's dating Donald uh, Trump Jr. Jr. No, and it's really fascinating and really important for me. And I read the comments, and I think, wow, she has got a lot of uh, people who admire her greatly and admire uh, Don Jr. Jr. And it's just helpful for me because otherwise you can just get in your cocoon, and I'm getting affirmation instead of information. And it's also an important reminder that there are a lot of people out there that may not agree with, you know, the people that I'm with more often than not in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I think about that all the time. I mean, obviously, this podcast and is pretty unabashedly progressive. My entire Twitter feed is is liberal Twitter, like really like leftist Twitter. But then I feel like in my actual life, there are people who who will challenge some of those things. And I'm actually I'm actually grateful that for small points of time I'm able to actually like inhabit what they're seeing Mm -hmm. so that that way I I, I actually find it helpful because I I know what I believe I know that I definitely am a progressive leaning person Mm -hmm. but I do think that it is helpful to for for a bit of time able to take yourself out of it for one second just so that you can really help sharpen your arguments as a progressive even. I agree. And I also think the art of civil discourse is being lost because I don't believe you, either side, whatever you feel, I mean, obviously some viewpoints are so repugnant and reprehensible, you don't want to have a conversation with a white supremacist. But there are people who I think um, you can have an intelligent conversation and it's actually possible to to win them over or persuade them or, you know, um, hear them out or understand that they may have an interesting point of view on something and agree to disagree. Or, for example, I did an hour on Confederate statues when I did my uh, documentary series. And I wanted to people I wanted people to understand, you know, a lot of people have opinions without portfolio now, as you know. They're just doing knee-jerk reactions. They feel a certain way. Um, and I, I think people should have educated opinions. So I really did a deep dive into uh, the lost cause narrative in this country about when Confederate statues were erected long after the Civil War ended uh, during um, uh, Jim Crow. No, yeah, during the Jim Crow era. But um, you know, also after Brown v. Board of Education is when a lot of schools were named after Civil War officers. And to really kind of understand what a symbol in a public square communicates to the people in that community. 
And, um, you know, I talked to many of my friends from Virginia who were really anti-taking down Civil War statues, and, you know, it's whitewashing history. And I explained to them, actually, erecting Civil War statues is whitewashing history. And, um, you know, so we, we had a conversation, and a lot of them said, wow, that's really helpful. I never knew that. And so I feel like if we can have these conversations, and if one of my friends had said this, I didn't cancel that friend. I didn't say, you're a effing idiot. I said, okay, well, listen, this is what I have actually learned. And from Mitch Landrieu's speech and from talking to someone, a state senator in Alabama, who was actually, you know, supporting why Jefferson Davis should be on the grounds of the state capitol and then reading some of the quotes that Jefferson Davis had said, um, you know, it's just so much better, to your point, Sammy, to have a to, to fine-tune your argument, but also to talk about it in a, a calm, respectful way. That's the hardest part I for me. I find that people get actually, no, I understand, but I almost feel like people get more agitated when they don't have the information to back up their argument. I think everybody would be well-served to take a debating class to learn actually how to put forward an argument, a point of view, but have it backed up by real, uh, you know, by solid facts and information. Definitely. And to be able to actually communicate in a, in a way that persuades people instead of makes them kind of close, close themselves off to a different point of view. I think we all need to kind of have a lesson in civil discourse. Well, I think a lot of that is the impact of social media and how the the things that do best and the things that the platforms oh, actually push up in the algorithm are not typically, you know, calm, reason. No, it's sort essays. of the nastiest zinger, right, gets yeah. attention. Unfortunately, I think that played out in the debates. You know, you know, it was sort of like who could be kind of spotlighted in Twitter immediately after the debate and instead of, you know, oh, that was a good one, I would much rather hear someone kind of give a measured, heartfelt, reasonable answer and perspective. Unfortunately, the format of the debates don't really lend themselves to that. But I, I feel like this kind of zinger uh, environment is really kind of taking over everything. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of a, everything has become, I mean, politics, you watch it, it sort of feels like sports, but for political, mm-hmm. the way it's covered it, the way the the colors and the graphics and the right, it does feel like like and the, the, polls. the you know W whatever WWE can you WWE can you tell I'm not a real front I mean, wrestling same. person I mean trust I don't think WWE, a lot of these listeners, sorry people um, hey American Fever Dream listeners I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion it's easy just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are for dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits healthier hair and skin. Yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. 
They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash fever dream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash fever dream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash fever dream. So, so when you're, you were talking about how people are so um, kind of the each media outlet has its own you know perspective and, and you know what you're getting and that that's contributing to the polarization. Um, but it does also feel that the standards of journalism, the, which I'm sure you learned in school about sourcing and how to verify sources and what is mm-hmm, acceptable mm-hmm, to be used as mm-hmm. a source, it doesn't feel that all of the outlets equally respect those standards. Oh, because it doesn't feel that way because yeah, they don't. <laughs> right. So yeah. so what, what do you make of the fact that some outlets – Many of them on, you know, one side of the debate Mm -hmm. tend to stick with the standards of journalism more than perhaps the other side of the debate. Oh, you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying I understand what you're Fox saying, News that Fox News not, is basically state-run television in many that's ways. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That oh, does yeah. not adhere to journalistic standards. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that MSNBC and CNN do not sensationalize, um, but I'm just saying that there is an adherence to verifiable reality. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree with you. But I think everything has been, I think, yes, Fox is by far the worst offender. But I think every so much has been colored by... You know, I, and, and, and in some cases, I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the news organizations, or maybe it is. I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about it because I think so many journalists are working so hard to do a good job, and I'm really proud of a lot of the work that's being done right now. But I think particularly in prime time, it's, it's turned into much more commentary. And I think that, you know, eye rolls and heavy sighs and, shake, you know, shaking your head, it just gives off that, you know, I am not objective vibe to people who are watching. And I think what's dangerous about that, it makes them dismiss that person and not trust them, feel that they're a credible, objective, fair-minded source. And so I think, um, you know, I think, I think that undermines sort of the fact that is, it is more fact-based and has, um, is more objective by by coloring it with that kind of attitude. Uh, yeah, attitude and sort of almost performance art, if you will. Um, so, is there anyone who you think is doing a really good job of maintaining objectivity or at least the appearance of it? I mean, I think Rachel Maddow, I don't really watch a lot of cable news because honestly, I would get sucked into the vortex of politics and not, you know, not have a life and do anything else. And I also find it very anxiety producing all of it um i i obviously try to stay informed that's my job and i still am very much a news junkie but i try to get it from a variety of sources and so what newspapers do you read i was gonna say i know you're gonna ask me what (laughs) newspapers and magazines do you read to be informed i wasn't planning i mean i i actually get a lot (laughs) i get a lot from newsletters first my own wake up call Huh? The Betches Up newsletter? Oh, yeah. I love the Betches Up newsletter. Thank you. <laughs> and, you guys should, uh, so you guys should subscribe. Uh, Katie Kirk is a fan. And uh, and to Wake Up Call, right back to at yours. me. Yes. Um, and so you can go to katiekirk.com and subscribe to, subscribe to Wake Up Call. Um, so obviously, I'm looking at news all day on my phone. Um, that's really my source, Apple News. I try to look at a variety of sources. I read a lot from The Hill for some reason. Always seems to pop up. USA Today, The Washington Post, The New York Times. Um, uh, what else do I read? Uh, I try to read commentary from different people. Uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal. But you could spend your life reading and being on the phone. And I think that's one reason people are kind of overwhelmed and almost turned off to everything. I think it can have the the effect of saying, I have a life. I, I cannot be sucked into this. So, uh, but I really do try to read a variety of things. I love The Atlantic. Um, I like The New Yorker. People send me articles. Sometimes I just read random things. But to your point about the proliferation of news outlets, let's even expand it beyond sort of the basic cable outlets. 
and you look at all these different news outlets that have popped up, I read things and I'm like, wait, what? Where? Who are these people? I've never heard of you know, this news organization. And you don't know what standards, if any, are adhered to. So, you know, um, I think that's what is also confusing. You know, President Trump claims fake news for any news that he thinks is not flattering to him or calls him out for something or doesn't, you know, jive with his agenda or is critical. Anything. I mean, any president hates the press because, I mean, in in different degrees, because the press's job is to criticize, analyze, and be a watchdog uh, of the president, of Congress. I mean, this is what our job is. This is the, the why the First Amendment is important. So he has really tarnished journalism writ large by claiming fake news for any time he doesn't like something that's written about him. It's disgusting. But having said that, what's happened, you know, I think at the same time is it's coincided with this proliferation of news outlets with no standards that do actually uh, trade in misinformation. They are purveyors of fake stories, fake information. I mean, the tabloids have been doing it for years. I mean, I've, I've been written about, so I know this for a fact. And so I think this whole idea of fake news by these illegitimate outfit, outlets and news information that may be critical of the president has been conflated. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I think people have a hard time distinguishing, I think, between those two trends. Well, how do you feel about the trend that I think is still in its very, very, very early stages of deep fakes? Um, for example, that oh, video with Nancy Pelosi where she, they made it look like she was slurring. See, Well, they just me, slowed that, it down, yeah. right? It was disgusting. And, and uh, I was really disappointed when I asked Cheryl Sandberg about that, which what is an interview say? you should listen to because it was really good. You know, I, I asked her about deep fakes. I asked her about that Nancy Pelosi video. You know, what's really scary is you can actually, you know, make it look like someone's saying something they completely didn't say. I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg, making Nancy Pelosi sound like she was inebriated by slowing down and making her seem like she was slurring her words, which they should have taken off Facebook, which they right. didn't. Um, but but now you can make people look like, I mean, I could they could have – figure out a way to make me say something completely false or completely scurrilous or horrible or defamatory, and people would believe it. And there was a study that showed, like, the fake stuff spreads seven times faster than, and then nobody, it's like a correction in a newspaper. Because no one's making boring fake things. Right. They're only making really, you know, hyper, hyper intensified fake things that will spread. Otherwise, why would you waste your time with it? Yeah, but, but, but you know how nobody really reads a correction in the paper. You know, once a story is out, it's done the damage. It's spread like wildfire. Um, There's an incredible guy named Tristan Harris who's working so hard to try to give tech companies some kind of um, some kind of morality when it comes to really doing what they do, and he is so compelling and so passionate. You should definitely have him on your podcast. You would love it, Tristan Harris. I can give okay. you his contact definitely. information. Now I'm booking their yeah. show. Jeez. I mean. This- <laughs> Thank no, you. but I mean, if you're interested yeah, in this, definitely. you would. And he's so eloquent and so committed to this issue. I mean, it is so important. I think that we even underestimate at this point how important it will be. But if if this Nancy Pelosi video is now, wh- where will we be in five years? Can you trust anything that you see, especially when you have bad actors who aren't even right. from our own country? And are we li- living in a post-truth world? I think that we are. It's really scary. It is. It feels very dystopian and very disheartening. So, I mean, where do you where do you think it's going? Is there are we past oh, the point? One? I don't know. I mean, you know, I wish I had the answers. And you know, I think people who care deeply about our country, um, I don't know. It's almost like we need a Manhattan Project for, uh, you know. Are the social fabric yeah. that seems to be fraying, not just at the edges, but, you know, all over. 
I mean, it it just scares me because I feel like the formative years of my life, we were told that I I was told a a narrative about the country that that I would be living in as an adult. And I fear that every day, honestly, I see signs that that is actually not what it's going to be. How so? Um, I feel like I was you know, raised and taught in school about just sort of the importance of things like voting and being like civically engaged and the idea of being like loyalty to your own country, um, like respectable debate, the idea that there's room for for two parties or multiple opinions and that, you know, we don't discriminate and oppress people here. And that's why you would want to come here and that everyone has a chance to make it. Right. Um, That's debatable um, whether that was really true even when we were being taught that but right um but i just and i i just think that it's going in a totally different direction um i think that this the, the scariest thing for me is you know the the alliances you know I, I assume we would be in a western alliance now it's seeming that those relationships are being broken down right in a way that is actually quite frightening because it could be a different world alignment than the one that i was taught we were Right. We were going with. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. So it I just mean, feels very destabilizing and, and worrisome. And I think, you know, what's interesting, too, I don't think it's a coincidence that the level of anxiety and depression has really increased, particularly among young people. I just did an interview with the Surgeon General from the Obama administration, uh, uh, Vivek Murthy, I think. I said his, I pronounced his last name incorrectly, but um, Murthy, I can't. Anyway, I just did an interview with him, and it was all about loneliness and social isolation. Social isolation, and we were talking about young people in particular. And I mean, there's it's such a fascinating topic. But I think what I was why I was reacting to that is I think macrocosmically, what's happening, you know, in the world around us. I think you can't help but have it permeate your psyche. And have it kind of almost be absorbed into how you're feeling. And and I think it's actually very toxic. And I think it probably is stress-inducing. Stress increases, you know, uh, cortisol and all kinds of harmful hormones. And, you know, I think I think it's, it's really um, an anxiety-producing time, both externally and internally for people. And, you know, like millennials don't feel like they're going to do as well as their parents. And, you know, there's technology, uh, which is, I think, adding a whole layer of insecurity. And, you know, Emerson says comparison is the thief of joy. Well, this is, you know, we live in a comparative life now. And yeah. um, all these factors. So I think it's just a very kind of um, – it doesn't feel like we're on the up no, anymore. No. And I think that grow up being, you know, like 10 years old in the 90s, it really felt like things were going up. Right. And then, of course, you have the whole generation who graduated from college and had to deal with the recession. That was that was our, like, I was... That was you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had started this in college, so I never had to really go through that. Um, but it was my... How old are you? 30. 30. Okay. So I was a so you are, in college in 2008. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, I mean, so think about people who graduated from college in 2008 and kind of how suddenly they were like, holy shit, you know, I thought my life was going to be one way and um, I've got all this student debt. Anyway, we should talk about something positive before we end because I feel like we've just been very negative <laughs> I agree. I mean, I I think you should run for office and stay civically engaged. I hope you don't retreat because one of the things that you were saying about in the 90s, how you were taught it's important to vote, it's important to be involved. And my big fear is that, you you know, that this kind of despair is going to turn into malaise and, and a lack of engagement in the political process. And I think it's so important. And I think we all need to engage with each other, not only you know, to 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 help promote our points of view, but also to help listen to other people because I just don't think with division we can make any real progress. I mean, you you see it playing out on Capitol Hill, all the bills that been, have been sent to the Senate that are just languishing. And um, I I really I'm an optimist. I am a glass half full person. See. And um, I really, I, I, I have to believe, I really believe people are inherently good. I don't know how I still yeah. think this after all these years. You know, I actually agree with you on the individual. 
I worry that groups are not inherently right, good. Right, right. That the is, institutions. Well, a lot of people yeah. are losing faith in the institutions, like media, government, and that's one that's of the also reasons. Scary because yeah. then there's then you lose standards and you right. lose the idea that there should be standards. Right, which is sort of the only thing holding us all together. We all dread the "What should we have for dinner?" question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going. But there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S dot com. But to end on a positive (laughs) note, yes. what is something that is making you feel inspired these days? A person, a movement, a trend? What is something that you kind of think, you know, that's that's something that should be shared? First of all, I'm loving building a company. I'm loving, hopefully, giving opportunities to young women who are interested in journalism, interested in storytelling. I hope that I'm providing a place for them to learn and share and grow and, you know, go on to the next thing. So that's been really inspiring to me. And I'm actually really inspired by millennials. Wow. Thank you. We never get that much of a compliment. Well, I know I know, millennials hate us. Okay, boomer. I know. No, yada, yada, yada. But I don't think that we do. I think, I think millennials, if I can speak for you know, all of us right now. <laughs> As a millennial representative think, for the United States of America. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would. Thank you. Is that official now? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm being sarcastic. No, no, I know. <laughs> but I think that millennials sort of get a bad rap for being entitled and, you know, apathetic and obsessed with social media and all these things. And many of that, a lot of, I don't think that those are unwarranted generalizations, yeah. but I actually think that we've, I think a lot of millennials were affected by 9-11 in a very strong way. I think some of the most... 9/11, the two, 2008 recession. I think that some of the events that have happened in our life in our lifetimes at formative times for us have been very scary and damaging and I think that it's that the story of this generation is kind of coming to grips with how to deal with those things and how to work around them. But from what I've seen, I think millennials can be very hard working, very passionate, um, and very creative people who want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're as bad as our reputation says. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on you all as a generation. I mean, I think that some of the things that characterize that are responsible for perhaps feelings of um, entitlement are actually kind of our fault. Um, And I think that we, I think we have the best intentions. And now I'm speaking for all baby boomers with millennial (laughs) children. I think we have the best intentions. But I think because we too often 
wanted you to feel good about yourselves. Uh, and the whole idea, of course, this is not a new school of thought about everybody gets a prize, you know, not letting you fail, mm-hmm. pressuring kids so much that they had to achieve academically, not feeling like they were worthy on their own without, you know, again, and then social media comes along and makes them feel worse about themselves. So always trying to prop kids up, I think, didn't teach uh, enough lessons in resilience and in how to handle disappointment. Absolutely. And I think that as a result, kind of you go into the world and you think, oh, of course, everything's going to go my way. I'm going to get everything I want because I kind of have. And so what I think is really admirable about millennials, although I think sometimes they're so woke, I'd wish they'd go back to sleep a little <laughs> bit, um, is that there is this new understanding of the unfairness in the world. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to learn for older people who really didn't think, didn't understand or even hear of terms like white privilege and, um, you know, how the cards are so stacked against certain populations. And I think this this realization of, you know, like I was always a proud feminist. It used to bug me that a lot of women, you know, a little younger than I was, would say they they didn't they didn't consider themselves feminists. I think Katy Perry said that. I think maybe even Sarah Jessica Parker said that, you know, at one point. And I'm like, how can you not be a feminist? I think it had such a negative connotation in some ways for some people. Just means the social, you know, financial equality for for the genders. And and I think there's um there's just a much more I think openness and tolerance and acceptance for people who are different. Yeah. In all in all walks of life, whether it's, you know, gender identity, sexual preference, I think, you know, much more open to people from all different ethnic backgrounds, I think. And so that's what I really like about millennials. And I think, um, you know, sometimes it's it's that cancel culture. I wish they would understand that they're they're going to be able to persuade people if they would just have honest conversations and appreciate and realize that not everybody is as far as is as far along as they are and you know we're all the product of years of cultural conditioning and implicit bias and sometimes that stuff is hard to unlearn yes and so i would just say you know help people understand just as i tried to with my confederate statues hour and I think we'd all be a lot better off and seen. Yes. I'm so happy you closed on that note about cancel culture because I really did want to ask you about it. And I was afraid we were getting to run out of time. But thank you so much. I know we had this very intense conversation. I'm kind of pitted out now. I know. <laughs> is it hot here? It, it is hot oh, here. Oh, okay, good. Because yeah. I feel like I'm in like a little bit of a sauna situation. It gets warm. Yeah. Like the conversation heats up and, and so does the room. I don't even perspire. I don't even use deodorant. Well, because I don't perspire, yeah. but now I am. We so maybe I need extra. to reconsider that. <laughs> this, room, <laughs> this room is notoriously hot. Yeah, we do. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, um, let me close this out. Um, thank you so much. You're welcome. Everyone, it was really fun talking to you. And I you think, too. you know, even intergenerational dialogue and conversations. I think it's really, really important, don't you? Yes. I, I mean, if you want to text me and ask me my opinions like you do to Gary, like I'd be open to that. <laughs> okay. I, w- I will. Yeah. I will. That's so funny, Gary. Yeah. I was like, Gary. Yeah. I mean, look, if if Gary and you and you can can have a dialogue. But it would be interesting to, to do a Q&A with Gary and say, this is how Gary in, in Radford, Virginia feels about the impeachment. I think it would be yeah. really, you know, I think we just have to all listen to other people and we don't have to agree, but we just have to acknowledge that not everybody is, you know, it's agrees with us. Yeah, it's true. As hard as it can be. So where can people find you? Where, where do you want them to follow you? Newsletter? Well, my newsletter is Wake Up Call. You can go to katiekirk.com. People seem to really like it. We've got a great team of people working on it. Um, I'm a very avid Instagram user. Um, also Same. Facebook and I, a little less Twitter, but some Twitter, I kind of have a different, I have multiple personalities on my social media <laughs> accounts. Twitter's a little newsy and more serious. Uh, 
Instagram is a little more multidimensional and Facebook is just, well, Facebook. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm working on a couple of documentaries. I'm doing some digital series. You know, it's interesting with social media, 70% of people get their news and information from social media now. And with disintermediation, being able to go direct to consumer, you know, you don't necessarily have to be on a network. You can actually have a voice. And, and, and I'd like to encourage conversation. I say, what do you think? Who would be your person of the year? How do you feel about the impeachment? And it's interesting to see you know, how people respond. So those are the places you can find me. And also I did a Netflix uh, a series called Unbelievable. I was the executive producer. I had nothing to do with the production, but I optioned uh, the article from ProPublica and the Marshall Project with Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant. And it's, you know, I realized that with all these platforms and all this sort of fractured media landscape, and I always say mass media has become an oxymoron, that you know, that there are different ways to tell stories and different ways to communicate important cultural moments and trends and thought-provoking content. So I'm trying to do it kind of across platforms. I'm a multimedia maven. That's awesome. I think you're really, <laughs> honestly, I think you're really ahead of the game. We talk about here how media is becoming a little bit more siloed, smaller, smaller, right? N- smaller niches, basically, for where people want right. to hear from. So, and podcast, yeah. my podcast. I didn't mean to oh, forget yeah. my podcast. My podcast is called Next Question. Um, and I explore a lot of important issues like violent porn and the ac- easy access of violent pornography, how it's shaping our views of relationships. I think oh, you'd yeah. find it super interesting. Online radicalization, hate groups. I'm doing, I did vaping. I did CBD. Um, I, Greta Gerwig, Jennifer Garner, um, Julie Andrews. So I also have conversations just with really interesting people who want to have an intelligent conversation. And, um, you know, I'm really enjoying that. It really allows me to explore s- subjects in greater depth. And I think people are craving that. Absolutely. I really admire your career so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to continue to ask questions because I'm really interested still in so many things. And I think curiosity keeps you young. Absolutely. And there's so, and there's so much now to uncover, I think. Yeah. Even more. It's a confusing time. And I think you need, you need to have someone to help you sort it out. And that's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This thank has been you. such an honor. I can't. <laughs> thank like, you. Hey, we need to get a picture. Oh, we will. Wait, I, I need to do my closeout. Schmitz. Oh, sorry. Oh, the let, closeout let, is. Let Sammy close. Yeah. Until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Fishbein, and this has been the Betches Sub Podcast. Betches.